I'd like to ask you to open up your Bibles with me to John's Gospel, and uh, we're moving into the second chapter, the first 13 verses, and that's page 887 uh, in your pew Bibles. Now, a number of you um, do request, and I send out to you, typically on Saturday night, um, my sermon uh, in a full manuscript form, and uh, I send it out with a little note on it. Now, last night, when I sent that sermon out with a little note on it, I directed you to a YouTube video. Did anybody listen to the YouTube video? Well, good. All right, so you're in for it. You're going to be hearing a little bit about Johnny Cash. But anyway, John chapter 2. It's not Johnny, that's John. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone jars there for Jewish rites of purification, each holding between 20 and 30 gallons. Just for those of you who are math challenged, that's between, I had a calculator, I did this, this is between 120 and 180 gallons that they would hold. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it over to the master of the feast, and when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom over. He said, everyone serves the good wine first. When people have drunk freely, in other words, when they've had often too much to drink, so it doesn't matter anymore, then the poor wine comes out. But you kept the good wine until now. Well, this is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and he manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I ask you now, please, that you would make the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, only John's gospel gives this account of the first miracle that Jesus performed. We know it's very early in the ministry. The beginning of John 2 says on the third day, and he's been saying next day, next day, next day. So this is seven days. This is seven days into Jesus' public ministry. It's the end of the, the first week. And uh, as we learn about it, I mean, really, I hope you pick this up. It is a very fun story, and it's told with a lot of humor. The miracle itself really is lighthearted. Uh, there's no restoring of sight to a man who's been blind all his life here. Uh, there's no uh, rise, raising from the dead a little girl who has died here. Jesus turns water into wine in order to keep a great celebration going. And I think it's very clear from this passage that Jesus is thoroughly enjoying himself. And I just think it's worth reflecting on that for a moment. And what a great Savior we have, who turns water into fine wine instead of wine into grape juice, 
We have a Savior who fuels joy, and his joy that he fuels is always the best joy. It's good-natured. It is full of love. Jesus is not only human, but he is humane. He is humane. Fully God and fully humane. Wonderfully, warmly so. And that has not changed. And that will never change. Jesus' miracle not only added joy, but it added humor to this occasion, at least for those who were in the know. And it's not lost on John in the way he tells the story. And I hope it's not lost on us either. That in the end of this account, we have a good-natured joke being played on the master of the feast. And why on the master of the feast? Because it's pretty obvious from what he says that he's kind of fussy and he takes himself way too seriously. And so what happens here is that, is that as Jesus turns the water into wine, instead of telling the servants, go report to the master of the feast what's happened, he simply says, you know, dip, dip your cup, dip, dip a ladle, whatever it was, into one of these jars that was full of water and take it to the master of the feast. Now you can imagine, you can imagine what was happening. Uh, the master of the feast was already upset. He was like, the, more than the caterer. He was, he was in charge of making things right. And he's already fussy because the wine has run out. And they bring him this cup of wine, which he doesn't know is wine. And he takes a swig of it and he discovers, to his delight or not, that it's some of the best wine he's, he's ever had. But what's his reaction to it? His reaction is he's indignant. And you can see just sort of what a, you know, kind of overblown fellow he is. He calls the groom over to himself. And he says to the groom, everyone serves good wine first. And when people drunk freely, then the poor wine. You kept the good wine until now. That's whiny. That is whiny. And can't you just see Jesus back in a corner with his disciples, nudging them and laughing while Mary is standing there and can't make up her mind whether she should laugh with them or disapprove of the fact they're enjoying themselves so much. Because this is a joke, and the joke is on the man who needs to have a joke performed on him. This is Jesus at ease. This is Jesus at his ease before all of the antagonism and the rejection of the Jewish leaders and it is Jesus at ease now. Think with me about this. At ease now. You remember what happened after Jesus rose from the dead? Luke tells us about this. He appears to his disciples. And Luke tells us that they were overwhelmed with joy and with doubt. Both. Overwhelmed with joy and they were overwhelmed with doubt. So they're laughing. They're thrilled. They're in awe. And they're not sure that this could really possibly be true and you can imagine what's going on you know the disciples looking at Jesus yeah it, it can't be not it's too good to be true it, it it can't be and what does Jesus say he says have you got anything to eat that's funny and they bring him a piece of fish and he eats it Jesus has a great sense of humor and it's clear that he was completely at ease he did not say give me a piece of fish. It was not like that at all. And when he related to them in this way, they knew 
that this was good old Jesus back in the flesh. Well, I love this account of John that he preserves the wedding at Cana because it, um, it tells us something important about what Jesus was like and what he will be like when we see him. This account in its full display, really, I think um, gives us a stronger sense of what it will be like to be in heaven with our Savior, who's fully God and fully human. You know, God gave to the Old Testament prophets visions, prophets like Jeremiah, Hosea, and Amos. He gave them visions that depicted the Messianic age where the Messiah would come and would establish his kingdom on the earth, depicted the Messianic age in terms of fine, fine food and abundant wine. And most notably, we see in Isaiah 25, beginning verse 6, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all Faces. The book of Revelation says that Christ, Christ himself, will wipe away the tears from every face and the reproach of his people will be taken from the earth for the Lord has spoken and it will be said on that day by his people. Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that we might, that he would save us. I mean, behold, this is the Lord. We've waited for him. Let's be glad and rejoice in his salvation. That's the picture of being with Christ forever that the prophets have given us. And it's that idea of feasting with great wine and joyful celebration made possible by Christ. It's that idea that is exactly what we see here. In John chapter 2, Jesus turns what is an awkward situation, you see, an awkward situation into a parable, not of words, but a parable of deeds to show what he will bring to pass. You notice he tells his mother that his hour has not yet come, but then he provides a foretaste of what that hour will be like in order to meet the need that's in the present. And it's a great, it's, it's tremendous. Now I have to say, along the lines of how I'm dealing with this text this morning, that Jesus' exchange with his mother surely warrants a comment or two. It reveals so much about their relationship. You know how in families, members uh, in public communicate in code with each other, and they know exactly what they mean, but no one else knows what they mean? Right? You know, you know, if it's close to 10 o'clock, we're at a party, and I go up to Diane, Diane goes up to me, and you know, she says, well, it's 9.50. The meaning is, it's, it, it's time to go, right? Or if someone, you know, drops something or has something they need, and, you know, we eye each other, it means help them. I mean, we have this whole code between us, and most people do in families. They develop this code they use in public so that they can express things that they don't necessarily want to have be over, overheard. 
Well, that's exactly what's happening between Jesus and Mary. When Mary says to Jesus, they have no more wine, what that means is, Jesus, I know who you are. You are the son of God. Now do something about this. And when Jesus says, woman, what does that have to do with me? My time has not yet come. What that means is, yes, I am the son of God, and I am saying no. And then what does Mary do? She completely ignores him. She turns to the servants. She says, do whatever he tells you to do. And why is that? Because Jesus may be the son of God, but she is still his mama. And... <laughs> And he indulges her, and he does this for his mama. Now, there was some separation occurring here between Jesus and his mother, and it would continue to be uh, continue as Jesus pursued doing the will of his father. But what I want to stress just this morning is that the deep bond between them, however, remained unbroken. And so, as he hung, dying on the cross who is as close beside him as she could possibly be it was mary his mother and even as he was gasping and dying he called out to her not for help but to provide for her and for the last time she would hear that endearment that expression of endearment that uh, jesus had used many times with her she would hear it for the last time when he would say, woman, behold your son, referring to John. And to John, behold your mother, referring to Mary. So that even on the cross, he was providing for his mother. Well, the word made flesh was and is the dearest man who ever lived. 100% holy God and 100% the dearest man who ever lived, the only true and complete man who ever lived. Your love is not wasted on him. Jesus used the occasion of the Cana wedding to provide a foretaste of what's in store for him. I've already said that. But he also, in doing that, he revealed something very great about that there, was, there would be coming something so much richer and so much more beautiful than the wateriness of life, our living, you know, without him. And I think that's very clear. I don't think you have to understand the Old Testament prophets to get that to get that at all. And this is why I made the reference in my note to you who get the sermon that I did. In 1969, Johnny Cash performed a live concert for the men at San Quentin State Prison in California. And it was there that he first sang his song or unveiled his song, A Boy Named Sue. Has anybody heard A Boy Named Sue? That's good. And for those poor souls who have not, Go to YouTube and listen to it. It's a story of a boy who gets in a fight with his father because his father named him Sue. It's very funny. And when that's sung at San Quentin, you know, the, the inmates are howling with laughter and cheering. It was great. But then he also introduced and sang, 
he turned the water into wine. And when he did, because the concert's filmed, you can see that the men are completely quiet. And other than Johnny singing, you could hear a pin drop. Because when he sang, do you know how that song goes, the beginning of the song? Come on, folks. He turned the water into wine. He turned the water into wine. From a little old Cana town, the word went all around there saying, he turned the water into wine. That's exactly right. And when they heard that, they understood. Those convicts, those men understood that, that Christ offers life. Christ is offering a better life. He's offering eternal life to sinners who have no hope who are absolutely stuck. And the time for trying to purify themselves is over. It's time simply to accept Christ's blood poured out for them. That's the time that has come. There's no more point in, in, in even one, you know, having any hope about the wateriness of their lives. It was so wasted. Lives that are so impure that could never be washed. But Jesus turns the water into wine. And they understood that. You don't have to be a Bible scholar to see it. It takes the Holy Spirit. But I do want to say that when you turn to the book of John and you study it, however, you will see that Jesus makes it clear again and again and again that he has come to replace the old, which is of less value, which is passing away, which is temporary, with the new, which is, which is eternal and true and far better. And he, that is why he has come. That is what he's come for. That is what salvation means to us. In Cana, he replaces the old purifications, the water jars, those watery purifications of Judaism with this cleansing blood that we are to drink. In the very next passage, he replaces the old temple, the temple of Herod, built over the course of 46 years or whatever, with his own body. And he says, destroy this, this temple, and it will rise in three days. In the very next passage with Nicodemus, he replaces the necessity of our first birth, our natural birth, with the necessity of our second birth and a spiritual birth, which is so much better. And then with a Samaritan woman at that well, he replaces the water from Jacob's well in that town in Samaria with the living water of the Holy Spirit whom he promises. And the worship that was occurring not only at Gerizim, but also at Jerusalem or any, else, any place else in the world with worship in spirit and truth that can be conducted anywhere and at any time in the world. This theme is very potent. Jesus came to replace what is old and passing away and what we have relied on with something that's so much greater and better in himself. And the book of John summarizes this again and again when he calls it eternal life, eternal, everlasting life, fellowship with God. How can we pass by a Savior? And I say this not rhetorically, I know that every Sunday when we're in this congregation together, there are people here who are looking into Christianity, who are weighing a choice about Christ, maybe some people here who don't even want to be here. But I want to say to you in all honesty, how can we pass by a Savior who is the source of the cleansing we need before God, of the access to God 
for which we were created, the source of spiritual renewal through the Holy Spirit that makes us whole and who can bring us to worship, how can we pass him by? There is no other. There's no claimant, other claimant in the whole world to be that Savior. It is Jesus alone. He knows exactly what you need and I need, just as he knew exactly what was needed at that festival, and he is completely capable of providing it abundantly. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. Well, Jesus at this feast, it's more to it than that, you know, because Jesus at this feast was actually introducing a new dimension of salvation, entirely new, I think. Intimated maybe the Old Testament, but I, I think it's new. And this, this dimension of salvation he introduces in this acted parable at Cana, he then teaches in his other parables, and he teaches in verbal parables you read about in the other gospel writers, and, uh, and you even find it in John's book of Revelation and the vision that, uh, that the Lord gave to John. The apostles wrote about it also in their letters. What is this added dimension to salvation? And for that, a little bit of background is in order. What was the occasion of the celebration in Cana? Answer? It was wedding, right, exactly. This is a wedding feast. And one year after the bride and the groom pledged themselves to each other, the wedding day would finally came, and surrounded by family and friends, and the groom would come to the house of his, of his bride, the bride's father's house, and he would take her with their family and friends, and they would all parade back to his house. A great celebration, lots of joy. And he'd come back to his house for a feast that he, the groom, had arranged for. And that feast wasn't like our wedding receptions, which can be very nice and lots of fun. But that feast would last days. It, that feast could last as long as a week. And what's key for you to understand is that it was the groom's responsibility to provide that feast. And a bountiful feast meant a lot. The bounty of the feast was deeply significant. Whether the groom would go the, give the best he had at the feast mattered a great deal. It was seen to be the groom's, the measure of the groom's delight in his bride and in her beauty. It was seen as the measure of his commitment and devotion to provide for her. Not to mention hospitality for the guests. As a matter of fact, to hold back on that wedding feast was a scandalous insult to the bride and to the family. In fact, there's some basis for, for thinking that the bride's family could sue the groom if he had an inadequate wedding feast. He was certainly, if he failed, he was certainly breaking faith with his bride. So, that's important to know. So that when Jesus acted in response to Mary, what role was Jesus assuming? The groom, exactly. He was assuming the role of the groom. 
And in providing that endless supply of wine, 120 gallons, 180 gallons, he was prefiguring the outpouring of his own joy and his own delight in his disciples. Like a groom for his bride when his hour would come. And in this, we not only see the intensity of Jesus' devotion, but we see the sufficiency of his blood truly to purify us, to make us beautiful for him, and to ensure that the day is coming when he will personally come up to you and you and you and you and each one of us and wipe away our tears and take us to himself. That's exactly what we see. Jesus' engagement to us does not consist of a ring with a stone. You know that. It consists of a cross with his blood, far more precious. And our engagement to him consists of our baptism embedded with our faith. Very beautiful. This is our engagement, betrothed to Christ, waiting the end of this year until the day comes. And so it was given to the Apostle John who recorded this sign at Cana for us then to envision its fulfillment in Revelation where he describes the Feast of Salvation as what? What does he call it? The wedding feast of the Lamb. That's exactly right. And the wedding feast of the Lamb, now hear this carefully, the wedding feast of the Lamb is not so much about our delight in being there, so to speak, away from sin and death and suffering. It's first and foremost about his delight in us. This is the love of Christ for his people. Now these depictions of our life with Christ forever, probably don't need to say this, but I will, these depictions of our life with Christ forever are not images of excess or gluttony, or drunkenness. But they are depictions of his complete satisfaction with us and our complete satisfaction then also in our communion of love and joy with him. We have so much to learn about heaven, honestly. I know there are books, hundreds of pages about heaven. I think we know very, very little about heaven, actually. But we can count on this that there will be praise and there will be laughter. There will be deity and there will be humanity. And until then, for us also, and I'd invite our elders and deacons to come forward at this point, until then for us also, Jesus provides us with a feast of wine, doesn't he? Every week we have a feast of wine. But unlike Unlike the feast at Cana and the wine at Cana, the wine that is in this meal recalls rather than anticipates the blood of Jesus being shed for us. The wine at this meal looks back on what he has done. And as we eat and as we drink, we know there is a better feast to come because he has already given himself completely for us.
He has already pledged himself to us. And because he has, there is absolutely nothing more certain than that that he will give himself completely to us on that day. And until that day, he will keep us for himself. Because at the Lord's Supper, at the Lord's Supper, the Holy Spirit makes the past, what Christ has done, the future, and the feast to come. The Holy Spirit brings the past and the future into the present for us to enjoy and celebrate and give thanks for. The Lord's Supper is for us this morning.